0: CHAPTER THREE OF HOMAGE TO CATALONIA In trench warfare, five things are important. Firewood, food, tobacco, candles, and the enemy. In winter, on the Zaragoza front, they were important in that order, with the enemy a bad last. Except at night, when a surprise attack was always conceivable, nobody bothered about the enemy. They were simply remote black insects whom one occasionally saw hopping to and fro. The real preoccupation of both armies was trying to keep warm. I ought to say, in passing, that all the time I spent in Spain, I saw very little fighting. I was on the Aragon front from January to May, and between January and late March, little or nothing happened on that front except at Teruel, Teruel. In March, there was heavy fighting around Huesca, but I personally played only a minor part in it. Later in June, there was the disastrous attack on Huesca in which several thousand men were killed in a single day, but I had been wounded and disabled before that happened. The things that one normally thinks of as the horrors of war seldom happen to me. No airplanes ever dropped a bomb anywhere near me, I do not think a shell ever exploded within 50 yards of me, and I was only in hand-to-hand fighting once, once as far as once too often, I may say. Of course, I was often under heavy machine gun fire, but usually at longish ranges. Even at Huesca, you were generally safe enough if you took reasonable precautions. Up here, in the hills round Zaragoza, it was simply the mil- mingled boredom and discomfort of stationary warfare. A life as uneventful as a city clerk's and almost as regular. Sentry go, patrols, digging, digging, patrols, sentry go. On every hilltop, fascist or loyalist, a knot of ragged, dirty men shivering round their flag and trying to keep warm. And all day and night the meaningless bullets wandering across the empty valleys, and only by some rare improbable chance getting home on a human body. Often, I used to gaze round the wintry landscape and marvel at the futility of it all, the inconclusiveness of such a kind of war. Earlier, about October, there had been savage fighting for all of these hills. Then, because the lack of men-in-arms, especially artillery, made any large-scale operation impossible. Each army had dug itself in and settled down on the hilltops it had won. Over to our right, there was a small outpost, outpost also POUM, and on the spur to our left, at 7 o'clock of us, a PSUC position faced a taller spur with several small fascist spots dotted on its peak, peaks. The so-called line zigzagged to and fro in a pattern that would have been quite unintelligible if every position had not flown a flag. The POUM and PSUC flags were red. Those of the anarchists, red and black. The fascists generally flew the monarchist flag, red, yellow, red, but occasionally they flew the flag of the republic, red, yellow, purple. The scenery was stupendous. If you, if you could forget that every mountaintop was occupied by troops and was therefore littered with tin cans and crusted with a dung, to the right of us, the Sierra bent southeastwards and made way for the wide, vain valley that stretched across to Huesca. In the middle of the plain, a few tiny cubes sprawled like a throw of dice. This was the middle, This was the town of Robres, which was in Loyalist possession. Often in the mornings, the valley was hidden under seas of cloud, out of which the hills rose flat and blue, giving the landscape a strange resemblance to a photographic negative. Beyond Huesca. there were w- more hills of the same formation as our own, streaked with a pattern of snow which altered day by day. In the far distance, the monstrous peaks of the Pyrenees, where the snow never melts, seemed to float upon nothing. Even down in the plain, everything looked dead and bare. The hills opposite us were gray and wrinkled like the skins of elephants. Almost always, the sky was empty of birds. I do not think I have ever seen a country where there were so few birds. The only birds one saw at any time were a kind of magpie, and the conveys of partridges that startled one at night with their sudden whirring, and very rarely the flights of eagles eagles, that drifted slowly over, generally followed by rifle shots which they did not deign to notice. At night, and in misty weather, patrols were sent out in the valley between ourselves and the fascists. The job was not popular. It was too cold and too easy to get lost, and I soon found that I could get leave to go out on patrol as often as I wished. In the huge, jagged ravines, there were no paths or tracks of any kind. You could only find your way about by making successive journeys and noting fresh landmarks each time. As the bullet flies, the nearest fascist post was 700 meters from our town, from our own but it was a mile and a half by the only practicable route. It was rather fun wandering around, wandering about the dark valleys with stray bullets flying high overhead like red shanks whistling. Better than, better than night time were the heavy mists, which often lasted all day and which had a habit of clinging round the hilltops and leaving the valleys clear. When you were anywhere near the fascist lines, you had to creep at a snail's pace. It was very difficult to move quietly on those hillsides, among the crackling shrubs and tinkling limestones. It was only at the third or fourth attempt that I managed to find my way to the fascist lines. The mist was very thick, and I crept up to the barbed wire to listen. I could hear the fascists talking and singing inside. Then to my alarm, I heard several of them coming down, the hill towards me I cowered behind a bush that that suddenly seemed very small and tried to cock my rifle without noise however they branched off and did not come within sight of me behind the noise where I was behind the bush where I was hiding I came upon various relics of the earlier fighting a piece of empty cartridge case a pile of empty cartridge cases a leather cap with a bullet hole in it and a red flag obviously one of our own Took it back to the position where it was unsentimentally torn up for cleaning rags. I had been made a corporal, or cabo as it was called, as soon as we reached the front, and was in command of a guard of twelve men. It was no sinecure, especially at first. The Centuria was an untrained mob composed mostly of boys and their teens. Here and there, in the militia, you came across children as young as 11 or 12, usually refugees from fascist territory, who had been enlisted as militiamen as the easiest way of providing for them. As a rule, they were employed on light work in the rear, but sometimes they managed to worm their way to the front line, where they were a public menace. I remember one little brute throwing a hand grenade into the dugout fire, for a joke, unquote. At Monte Montepoqueiro, I do not think there was anyone younger than 15, but the average age must have been well under 20. Boys of this age ought never to be used in the front line, because they cannot stand the lack of sleep, which is inseparable from trench warfare. At the beginning, it was almost impossible to keep our position properly guarded at night. The wretched children of my section could only be roused by dragging them out of their dugouts, feet foremost, and as soon as your back was turned, they left their posts and slipped into shelter. Or they would even, in spite of the frightful cold, lean up against the wall of the trench and fall fast asleep. Luckily, the enemy were very un- unenterprising. There were nights it seemed to me that our position could be stormed by twenty boy scouts armed with air guns, or twenty girl guides armed with battle doors for that matter. At this time, and until much later, the Catalan militias were still on the same basis as they had been at the beginning of the war. In the early days of Franco's revolt, the militias had been hurriedly raised by the various trade unions and political parties. Each was essentially a political organization, owing allegiance to its party as much as to the central government. When the popular army, which was a non political army, organized on more or less ordinary ground, ordinary lines, was raised at the beginning of nineteen thirty seven, the party militias were theoretically incorporated in it. But for a long time the only changes that occurred were on paper. The new popular army troops did not reach the Aragon front in any numbers till June, and until that time the militia system remained unchanged. The essential point of the system was social equality between officers and men. Everyone from general to private drew the same pay, ate the same food, wore the same clothes, and mangled on terms of complete equality. If you wanted to slap the general commanding the division on the back and ask him for a cigarette, you could do so, and no one thought it was curious. In theory, at any rate, each militia was a democracy and not a hierarchy. It was understood that orders had to be obeyed, but it was also understood that when you gave an officer, when you gave an order, you gave it as a comrade to comrade and not as superior to inferior. There were Officers and NCOS, but there was no military rank in the ordinary sense, no titles, no badges, no heel-quickie and saluting. They had attempted to produce within the militias a sort of temporary working model of the class of society. Of course, there was no perfect equality, but there was a nearer approach to it than I had ever seen or than I would have thought conceivable in time of war. But I admit that, at first sight, the state of affairs at the front horrified me. How on earth could the war be won by an army of this type? It was what everyone was saying at the time, and, though it was true, it was also unreasonable. For, in the circumstances, the militias could not have been much better than they were. A modern mechanized army does not spring up out of the ground, and if the government had waited until it had trained troops at its disposal— Franco would never have been resisted. Later, it became the fashion to decry the militias, and therefore to pretend that the faults of which were due to lack of training and weapons, or the result of the equalitarian system. Actually, a newly raised draft, quote, of militia was an undisciplined mob, not because the officers called the private comrade, but because raw troops are always an undisciplined mob, unquote. In practice, the democratic revolutionary type of discipline is more reliable than might be expected. In a workers' army, discipline is theoretically voluntary. It is based on class loyalty, whereas the discipline of a bourgeois conscript army is based ultimately on fear. The popular army that replaced the militias was midway between the two types. In the militias, the bullying and abuse that go on... that. In an ordinary army would never have been tolerated for a moment. The normal military punishments existed, but they were only invoked for very serious offenses. When a man refused to obey an order, you did not immediately get him punished. You first appealed to him in the name of comradeship. Cynical people with no experience of handling men will say instantly that this could never, quote, work but, as a matter of fact, it does work in the long run. The discipline of even the worst drafts of militia visibly improved as time went on. In January, the job of keeping a dozen raw recruits up to the mark almost turned my hair gray. In May, for a short while, I was acting lieutenant in command of about 30 men, English and Spanish. We had all been under fire for months, and I never had the slightest difficulty in getting an order obeyed or in getting men to volunteer for a dangerous job. Quote, revolutionary discipline depends on political consciousness, on an understanding of why orders must be obeyed. It takes time to diffuse this, but it also takes time to drill a man into an automaton on the barracks square. The journalists who sneered at the militia system seldom remembered that the militias had to hold the line while the popular army was training in the rear. And it is a tribute to the strength of, quote, revolutionary, unquote, discipline, that the militias stayed in the field at all. For until June 1937, there was nothing to keep them there except class loyalty. Individual deserters could be shot, were shot. Occasionally, but if a thousand men had decided to walk out of the line together, there was no force to stop them. A conscript army in the same circumstances, with its battle police removed, would have melted away. Yet the militias held the line, though God knows they won very few victories, and even individual desertions were not common. In four or five months in the POUM militia, I only heard of four men deserting, and two of those were fairly certainly spies who had enlisted to obtain information. At the beginning, the apparent chaos, the general lack of training, the fact that you often had to argue for five minutes before you could get an order obeyed, appalled and infuriated me. I had British Army ideas, and certainly the Spanish militias were very unlike the British Army. But, considering the circumstances, they were better troops than one had any right to expect. Meanwhile, firewood always firewood. Throughout that period there is probably no entry in my diary that does not mention firewood, or rather the lack of it. We were between two and three thousand feet above sea level. It was midwinter, and the cold was unspeakable. The temperature was not exceptionally low. On many nights it did not even freeze, and the wintry sun often shone for an hour in the middle of the day, but even if it was not really cold, I assure you that it seemed so. Sometimes there were shrieking winds that tore your cap off and twisted your hair in all directions. Some went into the trench like a liquid and seemed penetrating, and even a quarter of an hour's rain was enough to make conditions intolerable. The thin skin of earth over the lone limestone turned promptly into a slippery grease, and as you were always walking on the slope, it was impossible to keep your footing. On dark nights, I have often fallen half a dozen times in 20 yards, and this was dangerous because it meant that the lock of one's rifle became jammed with mud. For days. Together, clothes, boots, blankets, and rifles were more or less coated with mud. I had brought as many thick clothes as I could carry, but many of the men were terribly underclad. For the whole garrison, about a hundred men, there were only twenty, twelve. Sorry, twelve great coats, which had to be handed from century to century, and most of the men had only one blanket. One icy night, I made a list in my diary of the clothes I was wearing. It is of some interest as showing the amount of clothes a human body can carry. I was wearing a thick vest and pants, a flannel shirt, two pullovers, a woollen jacket, a pigskin jacket, corduroy breeches, puttees, thick socks, boots, a stout trench coat, a muffler, lined leather gloves, and a woollen cap. Nevertheless, I was shivering like a jelly, but I admit I am unusually sensitive to cold. Firewood was the one thing that really mattered. The point about the firewood was that there was practically no firewood to be had. Our miserable mountain had not even at its best much vegetation, and for months had been ranged over by freezing militiamen, with the result that everything thicker than one's finger had long since been burned. When we were not eating, sleeping, on guard or on fatigue duty, we were in the valley behind the position, scrounging for fuel. All all my memories of that time are memories of scrambling up and down the almost perpendicular slopes, over the jagged limestone that knocked one's boots to pieces, pouncing eagerly on tiny twigs of wood. Three people searching for a couple hours could collect enough fuel to keep the dugout fire alight for almost an hour. We classified according to, our, to their burning qualities every plant that grew on the mountainside. With various heats and grasses that were good to start a fire with, but burnt out in a few minutes. The wild rosemary and the tiny green bushes that would burn out while, when the fire was well alight a cinched-out tree, smaller than a gooseberry bush, that was practically unburnable. There was a kind of dried-up reed, which was very good for starting fires with, but these grew only on the hilltop to the left of the position, and you had to go under fire to get them. If the fascist machine-gunners saw you, they gave you a drum of ammunition all to yourself, Generally, their aim was high, and the bullets sang overhead like birds, but sometimes they crackled and chipped the limestone uncomfortably close, whereupon you flung yourself on your face. You went on gathering reeds, however, nothing mattered in comparison with firewood. Beside the cold, the other discomfort seems petty. Of course, all of us were permanently dirty. Our water, like our food, came on muleback from Alcubierre, and each man's share worked out at about a quart a day. It was beastly water, hardly more transparent than milk. Theoretically, it was for drinking only, but I always stole a pannikin full for washing in the morning. I used to wash one day and shave the next. There was never enough water for both. The position stank abominably, and outside the little enclosure of the barricade, there was excrement everywhere. Some of the militiamen habitually defecated in the trench, a disgusting thing when one had to walk round it in the darkness. But But the dirt never worried me. Dirt is the thing people make too much fuss about. It is astonishing how quickly you get used to doing without a handkerchief and to eating out of the tin pannikin in which you also watch. Nor was sleeping in one's clothes any hardship after a day or two. It was of course impossible to take one's clothes, and especially one's boots, off at night. One had to be ready to turn out instantly in case of an attack. In eighty nights, I only took my clothes off three times, though I did occasionally manage to get them off in the daytime. It was too cold for lice as yet, but rats and mice abounded. It is often said that you don't find rats and mice in the same place, but you do when there is enough food for them. In other ways, we were not badly off. The food was good enough, and there was plenty of wine. Cigarettes were still being issued at the rate of a packet a day. Matches were issued every other day, and there was an even there was even an issue of candles. They were very thin candles, like those on a Christmas cake, and were particularly supposed to have been looted from churches, or popularly supposed to be looted, have been looted from churches. Every dugout was issued daily with three inches of candle, which would bomb for about twenty minutes. At that time, it was still possible to buy candles, and I had bought several pounds of them with me. Later on, the famine of matches and candles made life a misery. You do not realize the importance of these things until you lack them. In a night alarm, for instance, when everyone in the dugout is scrambling for his rifle and treading on everyone else's face, being able to strike a a light may make the difference between life and death. Every militiaman possessed a tinder lighter and several yards of yellow wick. Next to his rifle, it was his most important possession. The tinder lighters had the great advantage that they could be struck in a winds, but they would only smoulder, so that they were no use for lighting a fire. When the match famine was at its worst, our only way of producing a flame was to pull the bullet out of a cartridge and touch the cordite off with a tinder lighter. It was an extraordinary life that we were living an extraordinary way to be at war, if you could call it war. The whole militia chaffed against the inaction and clamored constantly to know why we were not allowed to attack. But it was perfectly obvious that there would be no battle for a long while yet unless the enemy started it. Jorge's cough on his periodical tours of inspection was quite frank with us. This is not a war, he used to say. It is a comic opera with an occasional death. As a matter of fact, the stagnation on the Aragon Front had political causes of which I knew nothing at that time, but the purely military difficulties, quite apart from the lack of reserves of men, were obvious to anybody. To begin with, there is the nature of the country. The front line, ours, and the fascists, lay in positions of immense natural strength, which, as a rule, could only be approached from one side. Provided a few trenches have been dug, such places cannot be taken by infantry, except in overwhelming numbers. In our own position, or most of those round us, a dozen men with two machine guns could have held off a battalion. Perched on the hilltops as we were, we should have made lovely marks for the artillery, but there was no artillery. Sometimes I used to gaze round the landscape and long, oh how passionately, for a couple of batteries of guns. One could have destroyed the enemy positions one after another as easily as smashing nuts with a hammer. But on our side, the guns simply did not exist. The fascists did occasionally manage to bring a gun or two from Zaragoza and fire a very few shells. So few that they never even found the range, and the shells plunged harmlessly into the empty ravines. Against the machine guns, and without artillery, there were only three things you can do. Dig yourself in at a safe distance, 400 yards, say. Advance across the open and be massacred. Or make small-scale night attacks that will not alter the general situation. Practically the alternatives are stagnation or suicide. And beyond this, there was a complete lack of war materials of every description. It needs an effort to realize how badly the militias were armed at this time. Any public school OTC in England is far more like a modern army than we were. The badness of our weapons was so astonishing that it is worth recording in detail. For this sector of the front, the entire artillery consisted of four trench mortars with fifteen rounds for each gun. Of course, they were far too precious to be fired, and the mortars were kept in Alcubiere. There were machine guns at the rate of approximately one to fifty men. They were oldish guns, but fairly accurate up to three or four hundred yards. Beyond this, we had only rifles, and the majority of the rifles were scrap iron. There were Three types of rifles in use. The first was the long Mauser. These were seldom less than twenty years old. Their sights were about as much use as a broken speedometer, and in most of them, the rifling was hopelessly corroded. About one rifle in ten was not bad, however. Then there was the short Mauser or mosqueton, really a cavalry cavalry weapon. These were more popular than the others because they were comparatively new and looked efficient. Actually, they were almost useless. They were made out of reassembled parts. No bolt belonged to its rifle, and three-quarters of them could be counted on to jam after five shots. There were also a few Winchester rifles. These were nice to shoot with, but they were wildly inaccurate, and as their cartridges had no clips, they could only be fired one shot at a time. Ammunition was so scarce that each man entering the line was only issued with 50 rounds, and most of it was exceedingly bad. The Spanish-made cartridges were all refills and would jam even the best rifles. The Mexican cartridges were better and were therefore reserved for the machine guns. Best of all was the German-made ammunition, but as this came only from prisoners and deserters, there was not much of it. I always kept a clip of German or Mexican ammunition in my pocket for use in an emergency, but in practice when the emergency came, I seldom fired my rifle. I was too frightened of the beastly thing jamming and too anxious to reserve it at any rate one round that would go off. We had no tin hats, no bayonets hardly any revolvers or pistols, and not more than one bomb between five or ten men. The bomb in use at this time was a frightful object known as the FAI bomb, it having been produced by the anarchists in the early days of the war. It was on the principle of a Mills bomb, but the lever was held down not by a pin but a piece of tape. You broke the tape and then got rid of the bomb with the utmost possible speed, it was said of these bombs that they were impartial. They killed the man they were thrown at, and the man who threw them. There were several other types, even more primitive, but probably a little less dangerous to the thrower, I mean. It was not till late March that I saw a bomb worth throwing. And apart from weapons, there was a shortage of all the main, minor necessities of war. We had no maps or charts, for instance. Spain has never been fully surveyed, and the only detailed maps of this area were the old military ones, which were almost all in the possession of the fascists. We had no rangefinders, no telescopes, no periscopes, no field glasses except for a few privately owned pairs, no flares or very lights, no wire cutters, no armor's tools, armor's tools, hardly even any cleaning materials. The Spaniards seemed never to have heard of a pull-through and looked on in surprise when I constructed one. When you wanted your rifle cleaned, you took it to the sergeant who possessed a long brass ramrod which was invariably bent and therefore scratched the rifling. There was not even any gun oil. You greased your rifle with olive oil when you could get hold of it. At different times, I have greased mine with Vaseline, with electric torches. At this time, there was not. I believe such a thing as an electric torch throughout the whole of our sector on the front, and you could not buy one nearer than Barcelona, and only with difficulty even there. As time went on and the desultory rifle fire rattled among the hills, I began to wonder with increasing skepticism whether anything would ever happen to bring a bit of life, or rather a bit of death, into this cockeyed war. It was pneumonia that we are fighting against, not against men, when the trenches are more than 500 yards apart and no one gets hit except by accident. Of course, there were casualties, but the majority of them self-inflicted. If I remember rightly, the first five men I saw wounded in Spain were all wounded by our own weapons. I don't mean intentionally, but owing to accident or carelessness. Our worn-out rifles were a danger in themselves. Some of them had a nasty trick of going off if the butt was tapped on the ground. I saw a man shoot himself through the hand owing to this. And In the darkness, the raw recruits were always firing at one another. One evening, it was barely even dusk, when a sentry let fly at me from the distance of twenty yards. They missed me by a yard, goodness knows how many times the Spanish standard of marksmanship has saved my life. Another time, I had gone out on patrol in the midst, and and had carefully warned the guard commander beforehand. But in coming back, I stumbled against a bush. The startled sentry called out that the fascists were coming, and I had the pleasure of hearing the guard commander order everyone to open rapid fire in my direction. Of course, I lay down, and the bullets went harmlessly over me. Nothing will convince a Spaniard, at least a young Spaniard, that firearms are dangerous. Once, rather later than this, I was photographing some machine gunners with their gun, which was pointed directly towards me. "'Don't fire!' I said, half-jokingly, as I focused the camera. "'Oh, no, we won't fire!' The next moment, there was a frightful roar, and a stream of bullets tore past my face so close that my cheek was stung by grains of cordite. It was unintentional, but the machine-gunners considered it a great joke. Yet only a few days earlier, they had seen a mule-driver accidentally shot by a political delegate who was playing the fool with an automatic piston Pistol, and had put five bullets in the mule driver's lungs. The difficult passwords, which the enemy was using at this time, were a minor source of danger. They were those tiresome double passwords in which one word has to be answered by another. Usually, they were of an elevating and revolutionary nature, such as, Cultura, Progreso, or, Seremos, Invincibles, and it was often impossible to get illiterate centuries to remember these half high flat high words. One night I remember the password was Carluna, Eroica, and a moon-faced peasant lad named James Dominic approached me, greatly puzzled, and asked me to explain Eroica. What does Eroica mean? I told him that it "...meant the same as valiente." A little while later, he was stumbling up up the trench in the darkness, and the sentry challenged him. "'Alto! Cataluna! Valiente!' yelled Yaim, certain that he was saying the right thing. "'Bang!' However, the sentry missed him. In this war, everyone always did miss everyone else, when it was humanly possible." End of chapter 3 of Homage to Catalonia.